This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. We often like to promise you guests and things we're going to do on this program. And uh, we try to make a point to make good on those promises on a regular basis. And today we're going to do so with Michael Bana. To date, Michael Bana has produced, directed, and shot over 40 hours of natural history documentaries, including 15 hours of primetime documentaries, which have aired on the Discovery Channel, Animal Planet, and National Geographic. Mike has produced, directed, and shot 18 films exclusively on sharks. He's also one of the curators of the largest shark exhibit in the world, Planet Shark currently installed at the Georgia Aquarium in Atlanta. We'll be speaking with Mike Bonnet in our second segment today, and naturally recommend highly that you stay for that. As the fictional Larry Sanders used to say, no flipping. But after that uh, brief bit of forward promotion, I'd like to start today's program with the following. The words of Olivia de Havilland, now aged 96, and winner of the Academy Award for Best Actress in both 1947 and 1950. In her words addressed to Mickey Rooney, she said, Mickey, 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 they say you have died, but I find this hard to believe, for you are so alive in my memory. There you are in the big room in the Chamber of Commerce building on Sunset Boulevard in the summer of 1934, a little boy passing easily as a nine-year-old when you are really 13. You hand me your work copy of A Midsummer Night's Dream, climb onto the banquette next to me, place your head upon my lap, and ask me to awaken you nine lines before your cue. Seven decades later, there you are in the rehearsal room of the Kodak Theater on Hollywood Boulevard, where 59 Oscar winners are gathering to rehearse their appearance at the Academy's 75th anniversary broadcast. I am early and already standing on my mark under D in line one. You are early, too, and head to your own place, which is alongside mine, under R in line two. But seeing friends ahead, you go to greet them in your irrepressibly jovial way. Only then do you return and look toward the entrance where new arrivals now appear. I silently turn toward you, waiting for the moment I know will come. You sense something and glance briefly my way. Then you look again, recognition illuminating your face, and tears springing into your eyes as you bound across the aisle, fling your arms around my waist, and pour forth lines of Shakespeare that are new to me, but which come spontaneously to your lips as words meant for meetings like this one. What a memory you have left with me to keep. And we too have to note the passing of someone who was a friend to this program, although I'm afraid I'm not going to find words as eloquent as those from Olivia de Havilland. But a few weeks back, those wonderful quotations we were citing, to great delight and promise to, to quote more from in the future, came from a dear pal who is now lost to us. And I can't think of a better memorial than to just grab a few of the great quotes from that same source. How about this one from Seneca? The greatest remedy for anger is delay. How about this one from Jean Rostand? The longer one lives, the less importance one attaches to things and also the less importance to importance. And one I especially like from the Hillsborough Rotarian newspaper. Too many people quit looking for work after they find a job. 
Sadly, my friend is gone, but I'm pleased to note that her quotations will live on and do so right here on this program. Our regularly scheduled quote of the day comes from Adam Smith, who said, Virtue is more to be feared than vice, because its excesses are not subject to the regulation of conscience. Scarily true. Our quote of the day comes from La Rochefoucauld, who said, He who lives without folly is not as wise as he thinks. And man, do I agree with that. Our joke of the day comes from the writers for Jimmy Fallon, who noted a couple weeks back, over the weekend, Brad Pitt spotted Matthew McConaughey on a balcony across the street from his house in New Orleans. So he threw him a beer. Because legally, that's what you have to do when you see Matthew McConaughey. Our stat of the day from Rasmussen is that 62% of Americans believe voters do not have enough say when it comes to choosing the country's political leaders. Amen. But only 9% think most Americans are informed voters, while 83% say their fellow countrymen don't know enough about policy issues. We understand the other 17% are Radio Parallax listeners. All right, we try to do good news on every program, and here's a stat that's probably got has to be considered good news. The Tea Party's popularity has slumped to a new low. Just 15% of Americans now say they support the conservative movement, down from 31% in 2010. 32% of Republicans now call themselves Tea Party supporters, down from 55% four years ago. By the way, we don't take the position that every Tea Party idea is crazy. Only that in the aggregate, the Tea Party appears to be crazy. To which I hasten to add, the opinion that Tea Party is crazy is an opinion, like all those heard in this program, that does not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the University of California. Our anecdote of the week, this is one I think we've used before, but we like very much, especially because there's going to be a Charlie Chaplin Festival in Niles slash Fremont, I believe, this coming weekend. Something they do every year. For more information about this event, you can go to NilesFilmMuseum.org. As you've no doubt guessed, our anecdote concerns the great Charlie Chaplin. It's a pretty simple one. Charlie once found himself in Monte Carlo and discovered they were going to have a Charlie Chaplin look-alike contest. He entered. He came in third. Now, we note there may have been some jealousy um, over at the Sacramento Bee with the news that um, we here at Radio Parallax named a Sacramento News and Review reporter as our horse's ass of the year based on his miscoverage of the McKinley Village matter. But it appears that Marcos Breton is going to do his level best to see if he can't take that award away. So, although our race for the horse's ass may not quite stack up to the... Uh, Efforts by the California Chrome to perhaps become the first Triple Crown winner since, what, Secretariat back in 78? We like our contest more, and in support of that, we cite a couple of letters that were sent to the Sacramento Bee about Marcos Breton. First, his uh, mouthing off about the arena, and uh, this prompted Ruth Foote to write, 
Regarding arena foes had loony reasoning, Marcos Bretone, May 25th, the majority of Sacramento simply does not care whether the Kings stay or go. We voted twice not to subsidize the Kings. What more can we say? Most of us couldn't care less where the mayor and his groupies dine. Sacramento's a family town, and most families will not be able to afford to go to the Kings games and probably won't even be able to afford to park downtown. Then there's this from Shannon Ross. <laughs> writing, regarding foes try to foil smart growth, Marcos Bretone, May 28th. Marcos Bretone's hand-wringing over opposition to McKinley Village is ridiculous. The definition of smart growth is not to build housing destined to become an isolated rental island due to its dangerous and unpleasant location. Bretone suggests people opposed or against job creation and don't want new families moving in. That's preposterous. Everyone knows the real estate mantra, location, location, location. This is not about vision. If developer Phil Angelides really cared, he'd build a high school for East Sacramento students who continue without. And I have to cite a couple of other letters uh, to other sources because I just found both of them so engaging. The first one was a letter to Heloise in the Hints from Heloise column. And although this one's kind of hard to believe, I'm just going to read it as it, as it was printed. Dear Heloise, my car gets so hot in the summer. Do you have any hints on how to cool down a car quickly? Heloise responds, Dear Jesse, who doesn't hate getting into a hot car? As soon as you get into the car, roll down the windows. Then turn the AC on high. You need to get the air moving to get all the hot air out. You can also open and close the door quickly to create airflow. This should help cool the car quickly. This has prompted us to write Dear Heloise and ask, Dear Heloise, I've stuck my finger in a light socket. It's hurting quite a bit. Do you have any recommendations on what I can do next? Although, I do have to admit, if you live in the Central Valley of California, you quickly learn these things. And I suppose if you're you know, in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, maybe this doesn't come up quite as often, so you don't kind of get into that how-to-cool-off-the-hot-car groove. But yeah, I should do have to admit, I've had people, the Bay Area people, come out here on one of those 104-degree days, plop into the car, and turn the AC on, neglecting to immediately roll down the windows. So I don't know, maybe this isn't as crazy an advice as it seemed at first. But I still think it's pretty... All right, here's a question asked. Marilyn Vos Savant, reputedly the world's most intelligent person. We're giving this one a second whack because we tried to pin down Bob Berman, the uh, astronomy columnist when we had him on a couple years back. And I thought he dodged the question. So let's revisit it. Someone asked Marilyn, when I was watching a science show, I noticed that the narrator mentioned only red, orange, yellow, white, and blue stars. Why no green or violet stars? Noted Marilyn, green and purple stars do exist. The color of stars depends on their temperatures and they emit radiation through the visible spectrum. But when a star emits peak radiation in a wavelength we define as green, it also emits radiation over the rest of the spectrum. Green is in the middle. So as mixing all colors of light produces white, the person looking at the star will see white, not green. And when a star emits peak radiation at violet wavelengths, it also emits a lot of blue. As the human eye is more sensitive to blue than purple, this star will look blue to us. 
I still think we're being slightly scammed about the Green Star thing, but we're going to let it pass right now until we can uh, find someone who gives us a more definitive, clear explanation. Maybe we can go to Neil deGrasse Tyson for this one. But, I mean, we do know. I mean, you remember the old acronym for the colors of the rainbow? Roy G. Biv. Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. I guess if you're smack in the middle of that with green, the light spelling of lower wavelength and higher wavelength will average out to white. Uh, I can buy that one. Mostly. And speaking of colors, let's do the most colorful part of every, every broadcast, which many people think is the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for... Locovores. We think it's more likely locovores with the news that a Norwegian artist apparently cooked and ate the meat from his own hip following an operation to replace it. Said Alexander Selvik Wenshol, age 25, it tasted like wild sheep. We do have to give him a certain amount of credit for not saying it tasted like chicken. But as for a decision to gather up, cook, and eat the flesh from your own body, well, that's, uh... All right, it was, on the other hand, a bad week, and, and actually a really bad week for guesstimating. After France's National Railway operator placed a $20.5 billion order for 2,000 new trains, only to discover that the locomotives were too wide to fit hundreds of stations in France, which must now spend $68 million to narrow their train platforms. It was, on the other hand, an ugly week for germ phobia, with the news that uh, Portland residents have apparently cleared supermarket shelves of bottled water and bags of ice amid an E. coli scare last week, prompted when local authorities issued a boil notice on tap water used by 675,000 people. This came after they detected E. coli in a number of routine drinking water samples. This prompted the Portland Water Bureau to urge locals to boil for one minute any water they plan to drink or use to make ice, brush their teeth, or prepare food. Mr. Millen asks if this is the same location, Portland, Oregon, where they drained a reservoir because a guy urinated into it. And, and frankly, Mr. Millen, I don't remember. We'll have to check that out. Now, it was noted, I perhaps pointed out to some of the local authorities, that most strains of E. coli are harmless. Although some, some are known to cause bloody diarrhea and vomiting. And there have been some, some deaths and some health problems with that, mostly when it contaminated hamburger. But the vast majority of E. coli is, is not going to cause trouble. I mean, uh, it's just not. The boil notice was lifted after 24 hours when further tests came back negative for any of the deadly strains of E. coli. But apparently zealous authorities <laughs> said they would flush two open-air reservoirs to remove any residual bacteria. And if anyone up there in Oregon thinks they can get rid of the bacteria in their reservoirs by flushing them, 
well, the DEA may need to get up there and start testing people for crack abuse is all I got to say. And to compound this felony, we, we have, I'm not sure whether it's a bad or ugly week, part two for germphobia, but um, there's this. Researchers at Auburn University told CNN.com last week that when it comes to modern air travel, the biggest concern may not be what you carry on, but what you might carry off. Their research found that infectious bacteria like methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, MRSA, can live for up to a week on planes that haven't been sufficiently cleaned. A team of microbiologists exposed actual airplane armrests, toilet flush handles, tray tables, window shades, and seat pockets to six types of bacteria, then stored them in conditions that simulated a pressurized cabin. And the germs lived longest on the most porous surfaces, like seat pockets and armrests. For example, MRSA, which does cause antibiotic-resistant infections of the skin, lungs, and bloodstream, lasted up to seven days on cloth seat pockets and six days on rubber armrests. The question is, does this actually represent a health hazard? And, well, I have my doubts. MRSA has a nasty habit of turning up on all kinds of skin cultures on people that have an infection, which is one reason why I don't do a whole lot of skin cultures. A person may be positive for MRSA and yet not be showing the signs of disease associated with that nasty bacterium. Therefore, blasting them with the antibiotics that are specific for it and sometimes more expensive may not be smart. Oh, and while I've been yakking, Mr. Millen has looked it up and it turns out that yes, indeed, <laughs> the notorious urinator into the reservoir uh, did commit his act up in Portland. And I have to ask, Mr. Millen, your mom lives up there in Portland. You spend some time up there. You ever hear anybody getting into trouble by drinking the water? Only when it's mixed with alcohol. Oh, that's what I thought. Well, let's do two more items before going to break. The first, uh, on this subject of microbes, there's a review in New Scientist magazine about the new book, Missing Microbes, How the Overuse of Antibiotics is Fueling Our Modern Plagues, by Martin Blazer. Note of the magazine, New Scientist has reported on the rise of antibiotic-resistant bacteria for years, as we have here on this program. Missing Microbes is partly about that, but it is mainly a story you may not know about the damage antibiotics do when they are actually working. There have already been reports that antibiotics may cause obesity by disrupting gut bacteria that play a role in nutrition. Farmers use antibiotics to fatten livestock. We're not so different, it seems. This book explains that such microbial disruption is widespread, often irreversible, and surprisingly damaging. Author Martin Blazer is a microbiologist at the New York University School of Medicine and head of the Human Microbiome Program. The magazine notes the discussion is frighteningly convincing. We've evolved with loads of microbes, especially in our gut. Our bacteria outnumber our own cells 10 to 1. These complex communities are a delicately balanced result of long evolutionary struggles, and we disrupt them at our peril. Every time we take a typical antibiotic, we carelessly wipe out masses of innocent bacterial bystanders. Experiments in mice and human epidemiology implicate these losses in autoimmune disorders, such as asthma, type 1 diabetes, and Crohn's disease. Babies delivered by cesarean section are not colonized by the right bacteria from the mother's birth canal. And gut microbes affect nerves and immunity in ways that have led researchers to investigate potential links to autism. Blazer's biggest worry? By wiping out some microbes, we're leaving less diverse microbial ecosystems. Holy mackerel. 
This is such a reflection of what we're doing to the world in general. Less diverse microbial ecosystems that are more vulnerable to disruption and losing helpful bacteria that protect us from the nasty ones. The remedy is to replace our kill-everything antibiotics with targeted treatments that kill only the bad bugs and to create better diagnostics so we know what to target. We also need this to help fight antibiotic resistance. And of course, one thing we've talked about in this program is the use of phages, which are specific to the bad bacteria. When antibiotics came on and were so commercially successful in the 40s and 50s, this promising area of research kind of got shelved. There's still quite a bit, bit of it done over in, in Russia and in Georgia, and um, this may have a role to play in our future. We've talked about that before, and we'll no doubt talk about it again. And final item to talk about is a piece by Hudson Sangre in The Bee, which is as follows. Foes of the planned McKinley Village subdivision in East Sacramento filed a lawsuit Friday challenging the city's environmental review process and its decision to build 336 homes on a site foes say is better suited to heavy industry. The Sacramento City Council, as we reported on this program, approved the project April 29th by a 6-3 vote. Praising its design and the work done by developers led by former state treasurer Phil Angelides. But in a complaint filed in Sacramento Superior Court, a group called East Sacramento Partnerships for a Livable City alleges city officials failed to adequately address air quality, traffic congestion, and other issues associated with the project. The group claims that the council's approval of McKinley Village violated the California Environmental Quality Act and city zoning laws. The complaint states that although the project was promoted by the developer as a sustainable infill project, in reality it consists of wedging a residential complex into a corner of the city that is utterly inappropriate for that use. It goes on to note the site is adjacent to a landfill and surrounded by the Capital City Freeway on one side and by Union Pacific's Railroad's elevated embankment and tracks on the other. As a result, future residents of the project will be exposed to unacceptable health and safety risks. The complaint asked the court to order the city to rescind its approval and prepare a revised environmental impact report and to issue an injunction halting its progress. We shall see what happens. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Stay tuned for the irrepressible Michael Bonner. This is going to be fun. <laughs> 